Welcome to our podcast series, Who's Universal, which we are hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference at Haus der Kulturen der Welt. The conference is co-organized by Anna Teixeira Pinto, Kada Atia, and myself, Ansel Franke, head of the exhibition department at HKW HKW Berlin. Our guest today is Max Jorge Hindra Cruz. Welcome, Max. Hello, thank you very much. Max Jorge Hindra Cruz is a writer, curator, and philosopher based in La Paz, Bolivia. From 2019 to 2020, he has been the director of Bolivia's National Museum of Art, Museo Nacional de Arte, MNA, in La Paz. Between 2014 and 16, he was coordinator of Sao Paulo's Seminario Público Micropolíticas and Programa de Azores Culturais Autonomas, PACAS, no, PACA. Together with Sueli Rolnik, Tatiana Rocke, and Amilka Packer. His research interests include the topic of colonial history and aesthetics and political economy, as well as the history of Brazilian underground culture in the 1960s and 70s. He is the author of the book Helio Oitisica and Neville Dalmeida, Block Experiments in Cosmococa, Program in Progress, published with After All, MIT Press, together with Sabit Buchmann in 2013. He is also a co-curator together with Alice Kreischer and Andreas Siegmann of the exhibition and research project The Potosi Principle, which took place at the Museo Reina Sofia in Madrid and the HKW in Berlin in 2010 and in La Paz in 2011. Welcome, Max. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Anselm and Anna. Well, also like to thank to not only you as hosts, uh, Anna Teixeira Pinto, Anselm Franke, and Kade Atia, but also um, Hardy Hartenberger and Susanne Wagner from the HKW team. Thank you very much for, for hosting me and making this possible. Max, I think um, we are interested in uh, many aspects of your curatorial and uh, um, uh, research uh, work, um, but I think it, it's probably um, best that we start uh, with your experience as the director of the Museo Nacional in Bolivia and the kind of program, the kind of project that you proposed for the museum and that you were only partially able to actually implement because, of course, of the political events there, the um, coup d'etat and its aftermath. Um, so I think it would be wonderful if you could introduce a little bit what it was that you tried to do with the museum and what you think is necessary to do with institutions like that, especially in colonial or post-colonial contexts such as Bolivia. Mm. Uh, yes, thank you for, for the question. I guess that um, one thing is not separable from the other. That is what happened uh, when I assumed a position as director of the National Museum of Art in La Paz and what was my project, let's say, uh, during my tenure and what was uh, the effect of the coup d'etat um, that in the end uh, cost me the position, right? Just as many other people in uh, public positions and hierarchical positions uh, lost their their jobs, some were even uh, persecuted, etc. But I'll go step by step. Um, so Bolivia, since the year 2009, has um, a new constitution and constitutes itself as a plurinational state. So up 
from 1825 to 2008, Bolivia was um, the Republic of Bolivia after gaining independence from, from the Spanish crown. And from 2009 on, with uh, um, under the president uh, Evo Morales, uh, Bolivia got a new constitution of the state. And this new constitution is that of the plurinational state. That means that the, and I quote, the plurinational state of Bolivia recognizes 36 originary indigenous peasant and Afro-diasporic nations as equal uh, to constitute the state, the plurinational state of Bolivia. So this is, uh, I think, already a, a very challenging, uh, let's say, political uh, proposal, right? It's, it's, a, it's a challenging to imagine what it means for a country like Bolivia, who has, as I mentioned, 36 recognized uh, originary indigenous peasant and Afro-diasporic nations living together to think and project them as equal. Now, in public institutions such as um, the uh, Museo Nacional de Arte, which is the, the most important, let's say, most representative art institution in the country, um, being in La Paz, um, the National Museum of Art, as you hear, is called National Museum of Art and not Plurinational Museum of Art. So um, one of, of the first uh, issues that came up um, was that assuming the position as director of the National Museum of Art, I had to deal with the contradiction of what a National Museum of Art means and what a plurinational state could eventually mean. And um, the question emerged immediately, what is the mandate of a national museum and a plurinational state? So the question rose, what, um, what does a, a national museum of art represent in a plurinational state? And it's not uh, difficult to imagine uh, that this national museum represented the spirit of the Republic of Bolivia that ceased to exist in 2009 and, um, and that included as its ideological guideline the idea of, uh, let's say, supposedly mestizo states uh, in a post-colonial setting. So that uh, basically what mestizo state in a post-colonial setting means is that the coloniality of the, the governmental structure is still at stake, right? So um, basically the Republic of Bolivia was dominated by a white um, European descendant uh, political and economical elite that in some cases um, is constituted by the very same family names that were already in power during colonial times. So we have during the Republic um, of uh, uh, Bolivia, we have a phenomenon that is pretty common in the Latin American context, which is that the independence from the colonial empires did not occur as uh, in Africa, for example, where um, uh, uh, the independence was linked to a process of decolonization and expressed, you know, explicit process of decolonization, a political decolonization. I'm not talking about theoretical universitarian constructs, but of real anti-colonial struggle that was an effort of decolonizing um, their territories. But in Latin America, in the uh, beginning of the 
18th century, um, with the exception of, of Haiti, of course, but you, you had in, in the South American context, in the Spanish-speaking Ibero-American context, you had all these successions of uh, the colonial state by uh, republics that were led by white Spanish descendant uh, people. So the republics in, in the Ibero-American context and in Brazil, um, they were all basically um, uh, like, they were colonial structures that were still at stake. And um, what did this mean for the National Museum of Art? The National Museum of Art, Museo Nacional de Arte en La Paz, had been throughout 14 years of the Evo Morales government. Evo Morales was, you know, is considered the first indigenous president uh, in a South American country. Uh, the party is called uh, Movimiento al Socialismo, Instrumento Político para la Soberanía de los Pueblos, which is a, a, a very long, but also um, very interesting name to, to spell it out. It means movement towards socialism, the political instrument for the sovereignty of the people, right? This is the this is the party name, uh, and so Evo Morales, in 14 years of government, based on a wide, very broad coalition of social movements, uh, uh, syndical movements, workers' movements, uh, indigenous movements. However, in this very broad coalition, had managed to change the character of uh, the Bolivian state form. Uh, to the extent that really, for the first time in history, there was a considerable indigenous participation in the state uh, form and the state apparatus in taking decisions, starting with the first indigenous president that we had, right? But, however, the, the, the former white political and economical elite had lost power, let's say, or representation in almost all of the sectors of society, but not in the art field. So it seemed to me when I assumed a position that the National Museum of Art in some way was still like the last refuge of these white uh, former political and economical elite that had lost power in all significant sectors of society, but not in the field of art and particularly visual arts. So there was still quite a, let's say, uh, conservative and uh, even reactionary uh, air uh, that, that dominating in the context of the National Museum of Art. And then it is interesting to see that this expressed in the contradiction of the name, right? You had the National Museum of Art in the Plurinational State. And this last fort uh, of, of the uh, former white elite kind of refuging themselves inside uh, uh, this fort and trying to continue a process of colonization of the minds and of perception within this institution, trying to maintain their privileges, etc. So when I arrived uh, at the museum, um, it was time to do something against it. So the first question that we asked from within the museum was, for what and for whom do we actually want a, um, a National Museum of Art? How come uh, if 
the patrimony that is safeguarded within the museum and its collections, you know, is of everyone, belongs to everyone, to the 36 nations in a way. How, um, how come that some identify and some do not identify with uh, uh, the collections, with the works in the collections? Uh, how come, and this collection is constituted by colonial works to contemporary artworks, so it's from the 16th basically, and even some pre, uh, um, pre-colonial uh, works, but then mainly 16th to 21st century. Um, how come some can identify with this legacy and others don't? How come some enter the museum in a very natural way and consider it their place and others never entered the museum and, and never felt invited into this museum? How come that this is the case? So uh, we had to take certain, I would say, measures to, um, as we created the motto to decolonize, uh, democratize, and de-eliticize the museum. That was the slogan. That was, um, you know, th th this was what we're trying to do in the museum. Decolonize, democratize, and de-eliticize. Um, while it is um, also important to understand, I had mentioned it before, the decolonization in the Bolivian context is a, is a word um, that is used, that comes from a political experience and not from the academia, right? So if, uh, for example, uh, HKW in, in the German context, speaking of decolonization is something that within the German speaking context is rather linked to uh, research, academic uh, uh, projects or artistic projects and so on. Uh, but it has no representation in, in the program of the government. While in Bolivia, uh, this is a sort of organic process that is in the tradition of the liberation of the African states, um, is, a, is a word that is part of the everyday life and experience of the people. So we talked about decolonization, democratization, and de-elitization. And can you um, describe a little bit the like what that actually meant, like what did you actually do and with whom, like what was necessary to, in order to actually start implementing something like that? And I would also have a follow-up question because um, uh, in a lot of South American countries, there is a certain type of art that gets institutionalized. So one could say that the museum form comes in in order to create a certain separation and elevating you know it elevates some genres as something that is worthwhile institutionalizing and museumizing while others like for instance murals will remain outside of like this uh, you know like uh, uh, let's say like uh, uh, circuits that uh, also function function as like archival circuits in the sense that they preserve the memories or the memory of the art forms that are institutionalized so I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the situation in Bolivia, but I'm wondering if uh, part of this, you know, like part of the role that contemporary art plays also has to do with the way contemporary art elevates certain types of genres and, you know, like degrades others. Uh, but also um, with the, 
the fact that the consumption is not democratized, right? That, uh, you know, like the way contemporary art is consumed uh, remains very elitistic. Unlike other forms like cinema or theater. Mm. Let me um, draw like a, a, a little mapping of, of the situation of the National Museum of Art in La Paz. The National Museum of Art in La Paz is uh, um, uh, with, finds itself within a, an old colonial building that was uh, the house uh, of one of the uh, rather famous uh, um, govern, colonial governors. So it is located exactly on the corner of the main square in La Paz. The main square, the Plaza Murillo, is also the plaza, the place where, um, where, where you have the presidential palace, you have the cathedral, you have the parliament. So it is on the very spot of uh, uh, political power, where, where the representation of political power takes place in its institutions. So the uh, um, Museo Nacional de Arte is on this very same square. And there, um, it is on a corner with uh, the uh, traditional uh, city center shopping street, pedestrian shopping street, which is called uh, Calle Comercio, right? Where there's a lot of uh, shops. So as in Bolivia uh, is common, there is um, lots of salespersons sailing things on the street, which constitutes an informal uh, uh, market, right? There's people who basically spend their whole day on the street selling products. And these people are mainly Aymara of Aymara origin. So this means that um, the people who spent their whole life basically in front of the museum in that street, in that pedestrian street, are of Aymara origin. And uh, these people never felt invited into the museum, right? So one of the, the, the measures that, that we wanted to, to take was to ask ourselves, how do we get these people inside? And why do these people feel that they are not invited into uh, uh, the museum? So the museum door is, is a very high threshold, if you, if you like, um, you know? It's, it's a, uh, a threshold charged with, uh, uh, with the violence, so to say, that segregates um, society. And in this case, segregates the indigenous population from the uh, white um, uh, white mestizo population. So one of the things that we thought we needed to uh, revise or we needed to rethink uh, in order to democratize and de-eliticize, uh, thus to de decolonize the museum, was to let these people um, speak for themselves and not kind of only go to the museum to get a vision of what art would be and what uh, the national heritage, so to say, would be. And they would uh, only come inside the museum to consume that. But we thought we should start uh, an investigation and public programs that include these Aymara uh, people and ask them about their understanding of art. So one of the first things we figured together with uh, um, the 
former and now again director of the of the Museum of Ethnography and Folklore called Musef in, in La Paz, Elvira Espejo. Um, and uh, the Basque, actually, uh, curator, writer and educator, um, who is now uh, artistic director at uh, Rio de Janeiro's uh, Museo de Arte Moderna, uh, Pablo La Fuente. With them, too, we had thought about this idea if you have a plurinational state and you have 36 languages, um, what does art mean in all of these 36 languages? And uh, how do you translate art into the languages? And most of all, back from that language into, into Spanish and into an institution, um, like a museum. So we started um, to doing guided tours in uh, Aymara language, which were free of, uh, of um, you know, entry. Uh, so uh, people could freely come in and participate in the guided tours in Aymara language. So we had a, a collaboration with the Aymara historian uh, Isaka Isaya, who would um, then lead uh, the group through, through the uh, exhibitions and speak in Aymara about art and obviously, first of all, encounter the problem of how do you actually say art? in Aymara if you don't use the Spanish word arte, which is what very often happens, right? So if you would look for a word in Aymara, um, then what would this be? And there were several possible translations uh, of which uh, uh, literally like one-to-one uh, um, uh, -one translated, they would mean uh, things that are done with the hands or um, or beautiful things, for example, right? So, so there, there are different possible translations in Aymara that the group of the uh, visited the guided tour would, you know, discuss whether which one would apply better or best in order to define what art is. So, what does it mean? And we also had a, a public um, a public program uh, which we called. Programa de Estudios Descoloniales en Arte, Program for Decolonial Studies in Arts, if you like, um, in which we would uh, just simply and plain ask the question, what is art? And give different perspectives, be it from uh, the experience of uh, Afro-Bolivian uh, populations, from the experience of uh, Quechua Cosmovision, of Aymara Cosmovision, from the experience of um, Aymara migrants in the city of El Alto, or whatever, uh, all different sorts of perspectives to ask ourselves how to deal with art in a condition that has not um, uh, the, that, that is not uh, defined and determined by the colonial condition, right? So these were some of, of, of the things that we did. We, we thought we need to rethink what art is. Art is a form that needs to be thoroughly rethought because we cannot rely on the colonial vocabulary that we have to speak about art. We need to invent a new vocabulary and we need to do it with, uh, um, with a new public. So th this, this was one part, right? Anna, you, you, you asked also about um, the collections and, uh, and uh, muralism, for example, the tradition of muralism. I was just uh, saying, yeah, about what gets to be collected and what does not get to be collected. As Anzem had mentioned in, in the very beginning, um, I, I lost my job to, to the coup d'etat 
in um, which took place in November of 2019, and I was forced out of the museum in mid-2020. So everything kind of took uh, uh, some time. Still, I, I, I wasn't longer than 15 months at the museum. Uh, public institutions in general, um, the National Museum of Art in La Paz in particular, are kind of slow mechanisms, right? Public uh, administration is a particular thing, a particular discipline. And um, so it takes a lot to actually be able to implement new structures. And for example, buy new artworks, right? So you need to include uh, um, the money for the artworks in the budgetarian calculation, which you need to do one and a half years before the actual year starts uh, where you would like to spend the money, etc. So it was complicated and unfortunately I couldn't um, uh, take the process of change uh, to a moment when we would considerably change what is acquired by the museum to um, widen the collection and also artworks in the collection that would broaden the perception of what art is, as we had just discussed. So, as I had mentioned, uh, the, the National Museum of Art had remained under the control, basically, and in the hands of uh, a white elite. And um, it also had a notion of art that was strongly uh, determined by the narratives um, that came up in the 1950s. The museum itself was only uh, um, founded in the 1960s. Um, in 1952, in Bolivia, there was a, a revolution that uh, considered itself to be um, a revolution of uh, farmers and a, a left-wing revolution and uh, led by the Revolutionary Nationalist Movement, MNR, as the initials are in, in Spanish language, MNR. And um, this uh, Revolutionary Nationalist Movement, they had proposed a sort of peasant uh, uh, socialist revolution, as uh, some of the people who had participated in this revolution, in this process, uh, like the political scientist, um, uh, René Sabaleta, who is one of the, I think, most important thinkers of Bolivian theory and in the 20th century, uh, René Sabaleta had declared the revolution has failed very soon after it, it actually took place, right? And so what this revolution did was to perpetuate, in a certain way, the uh, uh, white dominance, yet under a supposedly socialist discourse, under a supposedly inclusive discourse that would include the indigenous populations that because of, of the political dogma that was uh, dominant in that moment, uh, changed the notion of the indigenous into a notion of peasants in order to make them compatible to a rather dogmatic Marxist uh, perspective and interpretation of how revolution could take place. So um, in that moment, with the revolution of 1952 in Bolivia, there was also created uh, the idea and the ideology of a mestizo identity, right? So, and but what does mestizo identity mean? Of course, if you see it from today's perspective, you say there's 36 nations that somehow are in whatever way mixed with 
um, with the white European legacy of, of the colonial rule. So, um, but within the Mestizo definition, these 36 nations do not have any name, they do not have any identity, they simply are, you know, the other mixed uh, with the European. And this, however, comes out as a Mestizo identity, while we also know that um, the Mestizo identity was a camouflaged, uh, a white, uh, white dominated setting uh, um, that proposed uh, a Mestizo white identity, that proposed uh, um, a follow up on uh, the colonial logic. And the Republic of Bolivia was just as exclusive as it was before. Um, so a, a, a real change only uh, happened. Uh, I think it's fair to say, according to you know, to the participation of indigenous populations uh, within uh, processes of decision making, etc. This only really established itself uh, uh, from two thousand six uh, onwards and two thousand nine when we got the new constitution. However, um, in fifty two, with the revolution of fifty two, there was. Uh, a period where art revolutionized in Bolivia too, and we had many white, you have to say, but white socialist artists that would do murals, right? So the muralismo movement in Bolivia is something that uh, is intrinsically linked to the revolution of 52, had a very strong uh, um, impact by uh, um, uh, the Mexican uh, example of muralismo, also of revolution, and um, it was later linked also to, of course, um, the Cold War logic. However, in, in, in the 52 moment, this muralismo was white uh, muralist artists who would, like um, uh, Walter Solon, like Gilimana, uh, uh, like Ines Cordova, like uh, Lord Jovaca, who would um, create murals um, saying that art should be a public good and should not be uh, um, easel paintings from, from the studio and kept in, in small rooms, but it should be a popular, a public, of public domain, a public issue. It should be in the open space and it should be accessible to everyone. However, there is again this, um, this slight contradiction that even though these people had very noble um, thoughts and ideas, about making art public, this movement did not really count with a significant uh, indigenous participation. It only counted with a representation of indigenous people within uh, uh, the murals, according to the doctrine of the 1952 logic. And uh, this is something that I think, uh, in the end, we would need to change and we would need by this process of decolonization, democratization, de-elitization of the art institutions, we would need to create safe spaces for people of the 36 nations equally um, be able to uh, represent their culture, to present their culture, to create and to be part of the museum and understand themselves as owners also of uh, the patrimony that is safeguarded in the institution. You mentioned already that you lost your job to the coup. And uh, I wanted to ask you, 
Tell us also a little bit about those months and, uh, you know, like all the violence that was uh, unleashed by this uh, fascist regime that took power. Because uh, or specifically, I'm asking this question because everything was very much obscured by the European media here. And uh, I don't think that the audience uh, is aware of what happened in Bolivia during those months. And also, I think that there is like a tacit complicity of the European left with uh, far right or the far right, uh, not only in Bolivia, but uh, across South America. Um, well, first of all, I think it is important to say that um, the narrative of whether a coup d'etat happened or not is still being fought out in Bolivia, which is crazy for every one of us who, who has experienced it. But the right-wing reactionary forces that took over and, and uh, forced quit the uh, democratically elected constitutional government of Evo Morales, militarized the streets, um, these reactionary people um, uh, who committed massacres on the uh, indigenous population with military force, etc., against protests that came up, you know, in turn of the of the coup d'état. These people still say, and they have the backup of a lot of media and also international coverage, as you were mentioning, Anna. Um, they still deny um, that there has been something like a coup d'état, and they speak of a sort of I don't know, call it democratic spring or whatever, democratic uh, uh, revolution, the will of the people and so on. So even though after the coup d'etat that happened in the first half of November uh, of 2019 and culminated with uh, uh, the uh, senator, uh, the lawyer, like ex explicit and confessed racist uh, 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 lawyer and Christian fundamentalist, uh, Senator Janine Añez, as you know, being put into the president position. From, from this moment to, uh, um, it took one year till we had elections again in Bolivia, democratic elections. Um, and after one year, the Movimiento al Socialismo, the moment towards socialism, the political instrument for the sovereignty of the people, the party of Evo Morales, uh, with the uh, presidential candidate Lucho Arces won with 55% of the votes in what most likely has been the, the best uh, controlled and, and supervised uh, election of Bolivian history after everything that happened in 2019. However, um, the left won with 55% and with almost 27% difference to the second strongest force 27 percent in other countries with 27 you win a, a a whole election right and and however um we do have a democratically elected government constitutionally implemented and still the government has to through the juridical apparatus through what is in their hands to do constitutionally establish the fact that a coup d'etat has taken place in 2019 and it's not that easy so um the the right wing the reactionary right wing and the fascist uh, uh people and elements uh, that constitute it to a large scale 
they still are, many of them are free. One of the main players of the coup d'etat of 2019 was Fernando Camacho, who is a, a confessed fascist and a confessed, um, uh, uh, you know, um, he confessed to the cameras that his father would have bribed, negotiated, he said, with the military and the police to, to actually do the coup. Uh, he said that confessed to cameras. He's still free, and more than that, he could run in the subnational elections for governor of the department of Santa Cruz, uh, which is in the east of Bolivia. And he won. You know, he won the elections. He's now governor of Santa Cruz. And, uh, but he's a confessed uh, um, author of, of the coup d'etat, co-author of, of the coup d'etat. So in that sense, uh, I wonder, you know, what we can do or what, what kind of, uh, uh, what, what, what do we have to do in order to establish this narrative, to finally become, you know, an official narrative that this coup d'etat has taken place? I don't know. What happened? Perhaps yes, Anze. No, uh, I know. I know that you are always very um, <laughs> careful in linking up these uh, um, questions of both, you know, like the political events and also the the, the representational regime of institutions with uh, with the uh, with the actual political uh, economic relations with the political economies and with the <clears throat> the the kind of um, positions within global markets and capital relations. So I wonder if you could just maybe place what you just told us a little bit in that larger picture, because of, also, of course, Germany does play mm -hmm. no, not an unimportant role, even though it seems also not established what that role actually might have been. Yes. And I, I would also... Uh, as a follow-up and perhaps to make it a bit more concrete, would be very interested uh, to know whether you have an opinion about the question of lithium and lithium uh, mining and uh, the role uh, it played in the coup in the sense that, uh, uh, as far as I understood, there was uh, immediately after the coup occurred, uh, deal that was brokered with United States, namely with Tesla, Elon Musk's company, for the mining of uh, Bolivian lithium. Right. Elon Musk had this, uh, I don't know if you, if you heard it here, but he made these comments on Twitter saying that um, uh, they would do coup d'etats wherever uh, and uh, whenever they like to because they can, right? He, himself, saying we will do whenever and wherever we like a coup d'etat um, to get to our lithium. However, um, the the again, I think that the geopolitical or like the larger picture and the smaller picture are inseparable one from the other. Like from from uh, the local perspective, it is important to understand uh, what was at stake. Uh, the reactionary and fascists that pushed uh, the Evo Morales government with the help of the military and the police, because first what happened was uh, there was an election, there was a, an accusation of election fraud, uh, supposedly committed uh, by the Evo Morales government in order to secure 
the victory in, in a first round of elections. However, this was backed by a by a weird sort of pre-inform, in, uh, pre-release of an inform of the OAS, the Organization of American States, that supervised um, uh, the the election process and said um, there were irregularities and however they launched this information and as i said a previous release to the actual um, uh, information they launched it in the midst of uh, um, a nationwide uh, mounting of uh, the police forces in the all the capital cities and um, they immediately after uh, uh, this publication the highest uh, uh, command of the military asked evo morales to to resign so that's that's when evo morales uh, fled uh, uh, the country resigned and, and fled the country not before having proposed uh, to actually make re-elections and whatever but it it all collapsed in that moment so the the reactionary fascist forces that took over in that moment, um, their proposals were very clear. It was, it was to de-indigenize the government. They came with the Bible saying, and using the same vocabulary that the Spanish had used in the 16th century. They say, we have to, to do an extirpation of uh, uh, the indigenous gods, right? Deities, the ex extirpation of the Pachamama from the uh, palace of government in La Paz. They came in with their Bibles and, you know, huge examples of Bibles, just like grotesque uh, uh, imagery they produced. And everywhere was the, the, the cross, you know, Jesus and the Bible and the word of God and everything was around God. And, 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 and this uh, meant a severe secularization of an otherwise, you know, non-secular, uh, uh, um, uh, sacralization of an otherwise secular state um, that we had in Bolivia and uh, it included the de-indigenization also on the level that you know the policemen had the Wipala which is the representation of the Andean indigenous people flag and the tricolore the, the red yellow green flag of the Republic of Bolivia together and they would cut off the indigenous part of it and burn it publicly they would burn the Wipala flag they would insult every kind of symbolic uh, 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 representation of the indigenous people. Um, they would kill indigenous people in protests, like shooting at, at the protesting masses with, with the military, with, with, uh, with firearms. Um, so, and they would say publicly with the Bible in their hands that they had to, ex you know, to do an extirpation of the indigenous uh, deities. So it was basically a big, a recolonization project, right? And this recolonization project had as its ideal the Republic of Bolivia and uh, uh, white representatives, like white politicians that would represent the Yanine uh, Añez, uh, the, the uh, interim uh, president that came in with the coup d'etat, uh, uh, despite she being overtly uh, racist, um, she would also uh, uh, tie um, uh, dye her 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 hand uh, hair blonde, and so so it was a um, a representation of whiteness in in a certain way that became very important to this uh, uh, movement. So the de 
um, indigenization and the whitening of the state and the Christianization of the state was at stake in that moment symbolically. This I tell you from the local perspective, but what does that mean? That process of, uh, of uh, recolonization or neocolonization also has an implication on the larger picture that means. What was the colonization in the former centuries? It was basically uh, uh, white governance uh, exploiting and you know sacking uh, um, uh, all the uh, uh, resources uh, of Bolivia and make them suitable for a European market, right? So this is this is what colony actually means. I mean, they 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 didn't come to to Christianize, or you know, it was it was not an um, it was not a, a sort of uh, cultural uh, uh, project. Uh, it was not a, the idea of making a better world. They came to to rob us, right? So so the white people that came, they had a very clear um, uh, purpose and determination that was to sack. Uh, um, the resources and to bring them into a Eurocentric global market. Uh, so in a process of recolonization, the same thing you have to imagine happens. What the uh, 14 years of rule of uh, the movement to socialism and the political instrument for the sovereignty of the people, what they did was to to uh, nationalize many of the, of the big uh, enterprises and to do strategic processes of nationalization of industry, strategic processes of trying to uh, process uh, uh, raw materials in Bolivia in order to not fall into the trap that always has characterized uh, the imperial uh, colonial machine, which is you take uh, uh, raw material uh, from you know, a primary material from the colonies uh, and you leave uh, uh, the, the country where you extracted it from basically without any participation in the larger um, profit making of this enterprise. You process the products and sell the products outside of the country where you extracted it. This is why you have weird phenomena like uh, um, you uh, in Brazil, which is uh, uh, one of the biggest um, uh, coffee producers and was very famous uh, during periods for being the big boom uh, coffee producer, you would still hardly find a good coffee in, in Brazil, right? While you find a lot of very good Brazilian coffee in Europe, I don't know, probably in Portugal and in Germany, wh whatever, right? Um, so what the Evo Morales government and uh, the government that was before the coup d'etat and is now again in power with uh, uh, Luis Arce, the new president. Um, the the government of uh, the socialist government tried to strategically nationalize um, uh, the big uh, producing industries, and they strategically tried to process um, the the materials in Bolivia. In case of the lithium, for example, part of extracting the lithium is uh, also to build up a, a huge factory to produce these batteries in Bolivia so that uh, the lithium gets processed in Bolivia and then exported. The Germans were important in the sense that uh, Bolivia had a big um, uh, uh, contract with, with the German enterprise to, to to actually give a sort of monopole on this production, uh, to make it happen through 
the Germans, while um, lithium is becoming more and more important as a resource for the production of, of long-lived uh, uh, contemporary batteries, right, to run um, electric cars, to run uh, other sort of electric devices. And uh, immediately after uh, the coup d'etat, uh, these contracts were re renegotiated and the uh, uh, fascist and reactionary um, uh, coup d'etat government, obviously, and I say obviously because this is standing in a long tradition of right-wing governments in Bolivia, uh, had uh, turned their, their interest towards collaborations with the United States. One has to say uh, that the OAS, which has its seat in, in Washington, and which is also famous for representing the interests of uh, US American government uh, amongst the American states, uh, and is strongly led uh, uh, by this uh, US American interest, they were the first to actually legitimize uh, the 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 rupture right like the the, the coup d'etat that led to the coup d'etat uh, the inconstitutional rupture that led to the coup d'etat so um, the OAS was the first to legitimize it and immediately uh, the uh, U.S. government's representation and the European Union's representation um, pulled after and recognized the government uh, of the coup d'etat uh, impositors which as you might remember, also happened in in uh, Venezuela, where you have uh, uh, a guy sitting there who is the leader of the opposition, uh, who is being recognized as president by by the United States, by the European Union, who is Guaido, and uh, and now by Biden. Uh, interesting enough, it was not um, it was not. A difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in, in passing on the presidency from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Joe Biden actually has a more harsh and severe uh, imperialist uh, external politics regarding Bolivia and Latin America than Donald Trump had. So um, there's interesting things also happening. For example, one of the very few US media outlets that um, named the coup d'etat as a coup d'etat, recognized it, identified it, and condemned it as coup d'etat, uh, was next to Democracy Now!, uh, the newspaper Washington Post, right? The Washington Post then, who, who published, you know, proof of high qualified scientifics of the uh, MIT, you know, Massachusetts Institute of uh, Technology that analyzed the elections, that were considered to be fraudulent by, by the OAS. Uh, the Washington Post published material, later also New York Times, um, to prove that there is no such thing as evidence that a, a fraud actually occurred. You know, there is simply no evidence of it. It was just, it was just said out loud and brought uh, the constitutional government uh, to collapse and the coup d'etat uh, to take place. Um, the Washington Post, when Biden won the elections and they were, you know, promoting Biden through, throughout his campaign, um, suddenly changed sides. And when uh, the current uh, Bolivian government uh, put Janine Añez, the former dictator, into um, uh, detention, how you say detention when you like, where you're going through a, a process. Uh, uh, so she's in prison right now. Um, 
the Washington Post wrote this editorial coming out and saying like how undemocratic is the uh, uh, Bolivian left-wing government. So they, in a certain way, uh, obviously uh, took sides together with the, the new uh, Biden administration that has outed themselves as, uh, as highly critical of the uh, Bolivian government that was elected with, as I said before, 55% of the votes in the perhaps best surveillance and supervised um, uh, most correct uh, elections we ever had in this country. So, no, I just wanted to, to finish this, this realm of thought saying that you cannot separate um, the local claim of white reactionary and fascist uh, agents of the coup d'etat from a redistribution of or an interest in the redistribution of resources of Bolivia to uh, um, uh, the, the global economical realm, right? It is as it was in the colony um, to any sort of neo-colonial movement that has returned, and in this I think we totally agree, has returned in forms, uh, unseen forms of, uh, uh, of fascist tendencies that are taking over many countries uh, in the Latin American context and also globally. Uh, this return of the colonial in form of fascism is of course linked, just as colonialism was, to uh, uh, an interest in redistributing uh, resources in order to exploit and, and sell them. I don't know if you have a question and I would like directly follow from that because I would like to return to this question of what what the what the what the institution will actually become the museum might become when like you know this this process that you described that you have to start with the very word art I think is extremely uh, interesting and also shows the magnitude of what is at stake no like because if you look at the museum also as a resource or as something that is both about claiming representation and therefore of course power but also as something that is actually the resource for for reading and rereading and challenging one's own history um i wonder you know how this played out for you because obviously art here and art history in its very uh fundamentals or the universals that define art history would be meant would mean to to systematically you know either exclude or or sort of degrade or or push to the margins everything that this cultural expression um that would not fall into uh, a particular model of authorship into a particular uh, recognizable tradition of styles, etc. And of course, we know many of the institutions in Latin America have been constructed explicitly or even in grand public celebrations when the first European masters arrived, because now you can finally have a museum. So um, I understand when you when you bring in Aymara or any of the other 36 uh, um, uh, nations um, uh, in within Bolivia, um, that in each one of them there's a particular must be a particular negotiation process of what it actually means to be on that side of the exclusion of that side of the line and I but it's also of course a whole set of questions that emerge what part of our culture do we want to be in this museum no? like what does it mean to inscribe like you know like I'm just wondering 
the alternative um, reform or abolishment? Right? Mm. Like, abolishment. Like, do you have to, <laughs> how much? How do you how much do you have to abolish the institution to actually account for, to actually make it work in a different way? I mean, you know, it's it's of course it's of course not necessarily perhaps an absolute either or, but I'm just interested to hear your your take on it. Um, because inserting a little of you know like like one way would be to say you you cancel the division between the Museum Nacional de, uh, des Arte and you you uh, and the Musef no the, the Museum of Ethnographic uh, and Folklore etc because of course a lot of things were simply not taken into the sacred halls of individually authored um, uh, uh, fine arts uh, according to the European system of the arts which by the way of course painting was not on top of it for most of the five centuries and only really relatively late moved into this absolute position of representing of representative national functions so of course one way would to say everything that has been labeled folklore even or or uh, or uh, um any of its related terms, ethnograph ethnographic artifact, uh, ritual, or whatever, not a, um, ought now to be reconsidered because we have to re rewrite the script, basically. And perhaps back to the beginning because there was this question about the policy of acquisitions, and uh, you know, like uh, the question would be whether it makes sense to make a policy of acquisitions more inclusive or to just like uh, um, completely append, append like these questions of like uh, collection and uh, acquisition. Right. So uh, starting uh, uh, with, with, with the last one and coming back to the first one, uh, obviously a policy of acquisition would have to change. Uh, it was uh, always the dream of uh, Elvira Espejo, the director of the uh, Museum of Ethnography and Folklore, and uh, me at the Museum of Nas National Museum of Art, um, to actually merge our both museums and um, to create the Plurinational Museum of Art, right? And uh, this th th this was a big dream, and I haven't uh, uh, given it up. I you know hope that in a process of uh, mid uh, to long term uh, we might be able to realize um, this um, this uh, adventure to say it, uh, this way and and to you know become consistent with what uh, the process in bolivia is uh, the political process that bolivia is going through the process of change as we call it um, so i would say that this can happen if you would have a, a plurinational museum of art you would also be able to change uh, policies of acquisition. To make mm, one example, Elvira Espejo at the uh, Museum of Ethnography and Folklore in La Paz uh, sometimes produces works um, by, with the knowledge of uh, um, contemporary weaver women, for example. Like Andean Aymara weaver women, a community of weaver women, they would um, produce just today works that are commissioned by the museum and then they enter the um, they enter the collection in that sense because they were commissioned right and but uh, so there is no no not necessarily an insistence in that these works must be old or something but what is important is the relation of the knowledge uh, 
and uh, the process, the operational chain of the production in relation to its display in a museistic form. So uh, I'm saying that because I think that always, if we want to introduce a process as complex as necessarily is a process of decolonization, democratization, de-elitization of a museum, we have to invent uh, new administrative processes. We have to invent a new vocabulary. Actually, there's a lot of problems if you like to acquire something that is not oil on canvas. Um, like, how do you label it? What are the materials used? You need a lot of new administrative language uh, in order to classify the artwork that entered. So you have to change the administrative structure in a way. We have to invent a new administrative structure that would suit the idea of decolonizing, democratizing, desalitizing. We would need to find new words of what art is, like Anselm just mentioned and I had said before. We need to renegotiate which words we're going to create. Why? Because we need to create new semiotic universes and contexts. What is the main problem of uh, decolonizing art? Uh, Anselm just mentioned that, you know, we have to reconsider like rituals or I don't know what sort of uh, cultural elements that could be uh, now considered art. But uh, the, the most important thing is that we lack, we, I say, Eurocentric, uh, Eurocentric agents of the art field that work in museums, for example, or, or art institutions, usually lack the capacity of imagining something other than what has been already considered art. So um, what, one, one of the most interesting descriptions I, I have heard that characterizes Eurocentric modern um, uh, uh, art production is that um, the art object even the art subject in the uh, in in this uh, modern uh, Eurocentric cosmology is uh, always completely cut off the other semiotic spheres of society, right? So art takes place within a hermetic uh, sphere in which the artwork can have whatever. Uh, um, no meaning or whatever significance it can acquire as just to say uh, Marcel Duchamp's uh, uh, fountain or whatever, you know, uh, within this hermetic sphere, whatever object can gain whatever kind of significance because it is within an isolated hermetic semiotic sphere. But in all the other languages, contexts, for example, of the 36 nations or in Bolivia or any others, um, usually the artwork is not separable from other processes that take place, communitarian processes, chains of production that go from, uh, you know, in the end, if you have a nice weaving um, for uh, the community, you cannot separate uh, the food of, of the llama or the alpaca animal where you get the wool from the process of spinning uh, uh, the threads and later the weaving and what you use, whatever has been woven for, you cannot separate these things. But the Eurocentric modern mindset regarding art is only capable of grasping one element of this long chain from 
from the grass, the food, the animal, the wool, uh, uh, the spinning of the thread, the coloring of the thread, the weaving process, the ancient knowledge of the weaving women who pass on the knowledge of how to weave and how to color and how to dye the um, the, the fabrics and so on, um, the, the singing that accompanies it, the listening and, and so on, all these processes. And then you have a, a woven textile, what do you use it for and what sort of rituals or social context or communitarian context. Um, you know, all of this is part of, of understanding what a Eurocentric modern gaze would only recognize as a piece of cloth right which is the only thing that they can recognize as you know can be uh, uh, um, qualified as as artwork can be determined as artwork so the the um, creation of a sphere that is autonomous and within which uh, hermetic semiotic universes can be created and artworks can be identified and valued and brought into circulation. Um, this is whatever you may think of it as, as a cultural technique. Uh, uh, it's an isolated phenomenon also from what in other cultures, non-Eurocentric, uh, non-modern cultures, if you like, um, art processes are, right? So you can either say, you know, it's, it's the emancipation of the artistic sphere that produces this, and it's high developed as, I don't know, like, uh, um, you know, some uh, uh, European thinkers would like, uh, uh, like to have it, or seen from, a, from an indigenous perspective in the Bolivian context, like, a, a, like the opposite, if you like, of, of the bourgeois uh, um, Central European context, you would say, well, this cosmovision, the modernist Eurocentric cosmovision that hermetically separates the semiotic universes and spheres um, just lacks the capacity of understanding the complexity of a work of art, right? So it's also a political question um, how to address, to name, and to understand the processes, the chains of production that whatever comes out as a material result as artwork is part of. So it is a political question and determination. Max, another political question. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, flesh out a bit uh, what we once spoke about in a conversation when you said that uh, you encounter the tendency in the global north, more specifically in the United States, to fetishize uh, processes they would call, uh, you know, like they, they would uh, describe as like, uh, you know, like uh, being flexible and resourceful, but that one could also talk about in terms of like precarity and insecurity. Uh, and, and how uh, you see this tendency of the global north to fetishize basically anti-state formations and you know like its impact in the global south that was actually never allowed to have or to develop you know like state formations that would like uh, um 
not only protect the population, but also like create an environment, an infrastructural environment in which the population could thrive. Right. So uh, I think regarding this, it's, it's important to remember that the liberal project was always one that sought to um, reduce the state participation in, in a certain way, right? In, in controlling uh, the market. So the neoliberal uh, expression of this is to uh, debuild uh, um, the governmental apparatus in a way and its controlling functions. So what did I mean with uh, uh, your question when I said there's a sort of fetishization uh, by the global north of precarity context in the, uh, or practices born out of precarity in the global south is that if, if the heads of neoliberal schools of economy um, have always sought to debuild uh, uh, state structures, then the state forms that we offer in the global south, who were like uh, uh, hardest hit by um, the external policies of, of the uh, neoliberal empires and that since the structural adjustment reforms uh, from the 70s to the 80s in Bolivia as in many countries of the uh, globe, uh, global south uh, in, in 85 basically set in, kicked in like a huge um, privatization process, indebtment with the International Monetary Fund and pressure of United Nations um, to, to build back uh, uh, the state control and state sovereignty over uh, um, resources, uh, uh, production, etc. Then we see that the precarity and the lack of institutionality in the Global South in countries like Bolivia um, is the outcome of 500 years of colonialism. Call it uh, uh, first imperial colonialism, later uh, liberalism, neoliberalism, etc. These 500 years of, of colonialism have, uh, have shaped what is left as a state form um, uh, in countries like Bolivia. So right now what we can observe, or at least this was my experience when I was uh, privileged enough to take uh, uh, some some classes in, in uh, economy and leadership by a leading neoliberal uh, think tank uh, faculty, uh, right, um, of a US American uh, uh, economy school, business school, um, that these cutting edge uh, economy thinkers, um, that they would try to explain to us the advantages of um practices that are comparable with practices born out of the need to improvisation and precarity in countries like bolivia where you say okay so it makes sense obviously because uh, the situation the lack of institutionality in bolivia is the result of a severe process of debuilding and and working against uh, uh, government forms in bolivia and weakening governments in bolivia so they do not get sovereign while um on the other side of this chain, right, um, where the thinkers of these processes of neoliberalism that actually were responsible to debuilding a governmental structure in the South, these thinkers in the North obviously find a perfect 
sort of protocol happening in the south because there they already achieved what they wanted which is to debuild uh, um, uh, governmental structures so um, it was about this inversion right so it, it is like um, uh, how you say uh, you only have to learn to understand that as freedom well exactly the the our good friend the word uh, freedom yes uh, it's always uh, part of it but i think that um the relation of north and south is one that has to be kept for the for the european uh, and the north americans um the power that used to be the colonial power that is the neo-colonial post-colonial power that they still have these countries over our countries in the global south this uh, unbalance right of, of power positions this uh, dominance of the north over the south has for every reason and with whatever means possible has to be kept because it is the interest of the european and uh, north american states because this is what they can do to guarantee their superiority and wealth um, is to keep the global south weak so whenever you 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 talk about uh, decolonization processes and you seriously talk it not in a in an academic lecture but in a political process then uh, the states of the north will get really sensible to it and they will not want to go along and they will not want uh, to submit to a historic uh, responsibility that they do have uh, with the South. So uh, this just, Anna, to come back to, to what you are mentioning, you know, what, what is uh, uh, the European left and where, you know, where, where, where there is an uh, implicit complicity of, of the European left and, uh, and the, right and reactionary processes in in for example the latin american context i think um we have to always uh remind ourselves that the left is still uh in a social democrat sense at least is still a colonial process it's still a neoliberal process we um we know that they will not uh, as you say in portuguese um open their hands and and let free uh uh what they have for centuries kept you know in their hands and controlling no via brimão né no via brimão exactly thank you max yeah it was very good thanks thank you very much <laughs>